Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later, we'll be hearing from Austria about the outcome of last Sunday's election there, which has left 31-year-old Sebastian Kurz poised to become the country's youngest ever chancellor, as the head of a coalition likely to include the far-right Freedom Party. What are the implications for Austria, its neighbours and the European Union? But first to Spain, where the crisis over Catalonia intensified this week and looks set to come to a head on Thursday. The deadline set by the government in Madrid for the Catalan president, Carlos Puigdemont, to back down from his move to declare independence for the region. Guy Hedgeco joins me now from Madrid. Guy, this is a crisis that shows no sign of abating with, with the two sides digging into ever more entrenched positions. Is that how you see it or is there a route to compromise that might yet present itself? No, I, I think that is uh, is the case. I mean, th- there was a feeling that we might see some kind of change in the the dynamic uh, last Tuesday when we were waiting for the Catalan president, Carlos Puigdemont, to uh, make this long-awaited, widely-awaited speech uh, to the Catalan parliament in which he was expected by many to declare independence. Um, now, he didn't uh, declare independence, at least in a conventional sense. He, he kind of did, um, and then he suspended it. Um, and that left people, many people, rather bemused and confused, and it was a rather ambiguous statement. And there were a few days when the, the, the tension seemed to drop rather after that, um, as people were kind of working out how Spain would respond to that and what, and what Puigdemont's next step was. Um, but I, I think in the coming days, we're going to see the the tension pick up again. In fact, you, you could argue it already is picking up um, quite rapidly. We've had um, two arrests and jailings of uh, two civic pro-independence leaders um, just yesterday. And those kinds of developments tend to um, really fuel the, the hostility between the two sides. And I, and I don't think we're looking at least in the near future, at any kind of negotiated solution to this between the Spanish government and the Catalan government. You mentioned there the um, the uh, decision by the court, High Court in Madrid to remand two, two Catalan separatist, separatist leaders in custody. Um, there was talk of protests in across Catalonia today in response to that. Have those happened yet or um, what, what impact has that development had? Well, I think we're going to see um, many protests moving ahead because of those um, those arrests, those jailings. I mean, straight after the announcement was made, as soon as the, the news came out that Cuixart and Sanchez um, had been jailed, there was an immediate reaction. I mean, I, I was I, I was in Madrid, but I was told that there were there, there was one of these so-called caceroladas when people um, lean out of their windows and start banging their pots and pans. Now, that's been going on for several weeks at 10 o'clock every night in Barcelona and many cities across uh, Catalonia. But it happened sort of spontaneously yesterday as soon as that had happened. And um, this evening there are more demonstrations uh, due to be held. And I, I think th- this is going to probably fuel a lot of the um, mobilizations out in the street we're going to see in, in the coming days, I think. Now, the next development is due to take place on, on Thursday. I suppose just to recap, you know, briefly, this goes back. Um, there was a, a, an independence referendum held by the Catalan government on October 1st. Um, uh, Puigdemont, you said, subsequently um, declared independence, but but 
put a delay on implementing it pending negotiations and then the Madrid government gave him a deadline of yesterday, Monday, to make his position clear. He hasn't done so. And now the Madrid government is saying, well, by Thursday, if you haven't actually you know, withdrawn this declaration of independence, um, some action will follow. Um, we, we have already seen today, I think, the likely response from the Catalan government. Uh, writers and probably others have put out a story saying the Catalan government doesn't plan to say anything more than it already said on Monday. So that puts the onus back on Madrid then, doesn't it? Yeah, yes, it does. I mean, I think you have to take into account the pressures that are on uh, Carlos Puigdemont here and the pressures that were on him leading up to that announcement he made last Tuesday, which you know, disappointed a lot of people in the independence camp and which slightly confused Madrid, it seems. Um, but you know, there was the, the, the pressure, obviously, of the Spanish government and its possible reaction to any uh, independence declaration. So he was clearly aware of that and cautious about that. Um, he he was he didn't want to draw an immediate um, and strident reaction from the Spanish government and Spanish state. Also, there were financial um, issues that he's obviously taken into account. I mean, around 600 companies um, and counting um, have moved their legal base out of Catalonia in the last two or three weeks alone because of the political situation. And this clearly has rattled the Catalan government um, and people across the pro-independence movement. So those, you know, those are a couple of the, the issues that he was obviously taking into, into account when he was deciding how to um, present this declaration of independence or whatever you want to call it. But on the other side, he didn't want to disappoint his own supporters too much. You know, many of them wanted a kind of pure, unalloyed declaration of independence. Now, they didn't get that, but he kind of went as close as he could under the circumstances um, to do that. Um, so, you know, inevitably, I think many of them felt let down. I think this Thursday, you're right, we're not going to see any change in him. I think it would be a, a, a huge surprise if Puigdemont uh, did a U-turn and uh, suddenly said, no, you know, we're not interested in independence. Um, we're putting a halt to all of this. I think he's likely to push ahead um, or certainly not to, to withdraw uh, what he said already. And uh, I think the arrest of these two civic pro-independence leaders uh, yesterday in a way pushes him further towards that position, towards continuing along this, this so-called roadmap towards independence. Um, in a I think for, for the pro-independence camp, it gives them yet another argument um, to push towards independence and to move away from the Spanish state. So, I mean, it's clear, I suppose, he's on some kind of a hook or maybe several hooks, but the government in Madrid is also on a hook of its own, isn't it? Because once you start setting deadlines, well, then when the deadlines come, you have to do something. So what do you think we will see from, from the government on Thursday, presuming that there is no change in, in Puigdemont and his government's position? Well, what we're expecting is for Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy to start pushing into motion a clause in the Constitution. This now is a rather famous clause because it's been talked about so much. Article 155, which has never been used before in Spanish democracy. And it, in theory, allows the central government in Madrid to take control of parts of or all of the, the powers of any regional authority, any of Spain's 17 regional authorities, um, if they are deemed to be um, not fulfilling their duties. So in this uh, this case, it would be Catalonia. This has been talked about for, for quite some time, for, for quite a few months now. And I think many people had expected uh, the Spanish government to trigger this article of the Constitution uh, a few weeks or even a few months back to, 
to sort of um, preempt this whole situation. And instead, what Rajoy is doing is he's waited till the very last moment, rather characteristically, um, until there's been, you know, what you could call it an independence declaration to start implementing this uh, this article. Now, arguably, he's already started that process by giving uh, the Catalan government those two deadlines, the Monday deadline and the Thursday deadline. So in a way, that process is already underway. Rajoy has started talking about Article 155 rather more cautiously than others in his party and, and other, others on the, the, the unionist side, if you want to call them that. Um, but he has started talking about it. And the feeling is that um, we, we don't know exactly how he would implement it. Um, but for example, he could take control of the Mossos de Squadra, the, the Catalan regional police force, um, whose loyalty to the Spanish government has been very much under scrutiny given their role um, in recent weeks in, in all of this and in the, in the staging of that referendum in Octo and on October the 1st. And then the other thing he might do is uh, call a regional election in Catalonia um, to sort of try and reset the, the political landscape um, and hoping, um, you think, um, that uh, the, the the Catalan pro-independence parties would lose votes and that um, unionist parties would gain them. That's what what we're expecting at the moment. We don't know for sure if an election would take place, but certainly that's being talked about in Madrid. If the imposed an election, Guy, is it clear whether the um, Catalan nationalist parties would participate in it? Well, that is one of the big questions here. Um, and there have been some people in the, the governing popular party in Madrid who've sort of been making comments to the effect that perhaps uh, certain um, pro-independence parties should be outlawed if there were an election. Now, clearly that would be an extremely controversial move. And then you're moving towards something like what you had in the Basque country uh, 15, 20 years ago with Batasuna, which was linked to, to ETA. Um, so, you know, it would be a very drastic step to outlaw um, any party. Um, it's been talked about just by a couple of people in the party, and it's in, in a fairly sort of oblique way, mostly. But um, I think people are wondering if there was an election, who would benefit from it? Because you could argue that the pro-independence parties might benefit, given um, all the sort of pressure they've been under from the Spanish state and the Spanish government. And that might work in their favor. So, if Rajoy were to call a, a regional election in Catalonia, it might blow up in his face and you might see a large majority for the, the pro-independence parties. At the moment, they just about have control of the Catalan parliament, but it's a very narrow uh, majority there. Um, I mean, obviously, Rajoy would hope that uh, part, his own party and uh, Ciudadanos, which is the, the, the sort of big um, pro-union party in in Catalonia um, would make gains there. But that's not necessarily a sure thing by, by any means. And I, I suppose for, for that reason, actually, maybe that is potentially a way out, is it, and that both sides might see potential gains in that route and in, in actually having an election? Yes, possibly. I mean, apparently there are um, factions within the pro-independence camp, uh, you know, more sort of moderate uh, factions who are rather less strident about moving towards you know, a, a pure declaration of independence, who've been talking about that. But apparently, they don't have a lot of weight in the Catalan government itself at the very top. Um, because you know, we had a Catalan regional election in 2015 um, in the autumn, you know, uh, two years ago. That was treated by the, uh, the, the independence parties as a plebiscite on the issue of independence. Uh, and, you know, a kind of 
a, a final election stroke plebiscite. Um, they didn't they didn't want to go through that again. Um, so most of them seem to rule that out as an option. Um, but um, it is something that uh, does appeal to some people, but but I would say certainly not a majority in the um, in the in the Catalan uh, independence camp. There is, however, another possibility that um, a a small party in the um, Catalan regional parliament, called the Popular Unity Candidacy, the CUP, um, which is very much pro-independence, it's anti-capitalist, and it holds the balance of power in the Catalan parliament. It allows Carlos Puigdemont to govern with his pro-independence coalition, but it's not in the government itself. Now, this the CUP was very unhappy at um, Carlos Puigdemont's announcement the other day. The CUP wants to see something much more strident um, and much less ambiguous regarding independence. And it wasn't happy with what he said. So it, it has sort of threatened the last few days saying, well, we, we might pull out of uh, pull our support out of this um, pro-independence front in the parliament. If it did do that, that would make elections necessary anyway. So the, the good money seems to be on a Catalan election taking place, whether it's because it's triggered by that situation, by the Catalan government's uh, majority falling apart, or because Rajoy simply forces it to happen by taking control himself. Okay, and just to recap, come back briefly, Guy, to this Article 155 of the Constitution, under which the Spanish government would um, revoke or suspend or whatever Catalan, Catalonia's autonomy. As you mentioned, it hasn't ever been um, used before. So is it, um, there's even some doubt, is there, as to really what kind of authority it, it, it gives to the Madrid government until they actually try it out? Well, that's right. And, and, and like so many issues related to the Catalan um, question. Um, it's open to interpretation because it, it, you know, it's really quite vague the way it's spelt out in the uh, constitution. It's based on a similar article um, that's in the in the German constitution. Um, you know, and it dates from from the 1978 constitutional uh, document that was that was drawn up in Spain. Um, you know, at the beginning of the of the democratic era. Um, no one's used it before. You talk to different constitutional experts, they say slightly different things. Some of them say, yes, it does mean that the central government can suspend all the powers of a regional administration. Others say, no, it's a lot more um, narrow than that. Um, it doesn't say that necessarily. Um, certainly, there seems to be a dispute, as you would expect, perhaps, between um, people in Madrid and people in Catalonia regarding what it means, certainly between unionists and the pro-independence camp regarding what it could mean. So th there's a feeling that if it is triggered, um, it would be um, extremely provocative because it would be so dramatic uh, on the one hand, but also, as you say, you know, it, it, can, it is open to interpretation. So um, without a doubt, in Barcelona, the, the, the Catalan government would be questioning um, the, the Spanish government's use of it and whether it's legitimate at all. And so it'd be yet another bone of contention between Barcelona and Madrid. Um, one thing we've seen, Guy, in the last uh, couple of weeks is the political discourse has kind of played out. Um, some very uh, negative comments from from people on the European level in, in relation to the Catalan claim for independence. Um, the French president, uh, um, Emmanuel Macron dismissed any idea of mediation between Rajoy and Puigdemont. Um, some similarly very dismissive comments from uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, the European Commission president. 
has that had any impact, do you think, on Catalan thinking? Um, because I, I think there may have been, am I right, some sort of hope there that Europe might in some way come to their rescue and sort of impu- and sort of force Rajoy to the negotiating table. And it seems quite clear now that there's no appetite in Brussels um, or in other European capitals for that, for that to happen. Well, I think it has been significant. I mean, it's interesting because the, the Catalan government and the independence movement in general really see themselves as very pro-European. Um, they really highlight that point um, at any opportunity. And they're constantly trying to court support from not necessarily European governments. I mean, that's that's a very difficult challenge for them. But they're always looking abroad. They're looking to Europe and European institutions and uh, European uh, organizations for support. So they're kind of obsessed with how they're seen by Europe. And yet, at the moment, you know, there's European institutions that, well, the ones that really count, the European Commission, as you said, um, the European Union in general, seems to be kind of snubbing them in the, in the sense that it's not embracing that idea of um, pushing further for, for negotiations. And going back to uh, Carlos Puigdemont's speech last Tuesday, that, that widely awaited speech when many people thought he was going to uh, declare independence. Just a few hours before it, Donald Tusk, the uh, president of the European Council, made a public and very impassioned plea to Puigdemont not to declare independence. Um, and it seems as if that plea uh, did have some effect on Puigdemont, because I think he realized that, you know, if he pushed ahead and said, you know, right, we're independent, that's that, um, he might be alienating um, not just Tusk, but but others in Europe um, who otherwise might be uh, not necessarily on the Catalan side, the Catalan government side, but might be more willing to sort of push for negotiations. But as you, as you say, at the moment, um, the idea of those negotiations is kind of uh, that's kind of dried up a bit in Europe at the moment, and th- these calls for mediation that Puigdemont keeps making. Um, specifically to Europe and European institutions, seem to be falling on deaf ears. I think European leaders and institutions are very worried about stepping on the toes of Rajoy. You know, Spain has been a pretty solid EU member state for the last uh, couple of decades and the last few years in terms of implementing the cuts that have been suggested by Brussels. So they don't want to annoy Rajoy too much. I think, you know, in a sense, it comes down to that to a great extent. Rajoy has been a sort of uh, a, a good student of Brussels. Um, and this is a very tricky situation for the European Union. Thanks a lot for that, Guy. Thanks a lot, Chris. It's a pleasure. Next to Austria, where 31-year-old Sebastian Kurz is set to become the country's youngest ever Chancellor after an election on Sunday which delivered a victory for the Conservative People's Party. The extraordinary youth of the election winner is just one story to emerge from what was a highly charged election campaign. Another is the strong showing of the far-right Freedom Party, which looks well set to secure a place in the next Austrian government. On the line now from Vienna to tell us more about this and explain what it all means is Eric Frey, Managing Editor of the Daily Broadsheet, Der Standard. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Can you bring us up to date first on the election news? Are all the votes counted now? Is it clear what the makeup of the next government will be? Well, not all votes are counted yet. There's still a few thousand absentee votes, which will be counted on Thursday. But we know what the next parliament will look like. The Conservative People's Party is going to be the largest party. 
and with, with, with about 32% of the votes and 32% of the seats. Uh, in second place, the previously largest party, the Social Democrats of current Chancellor Christian Kern, they are now in second place and are likely to go into opposition. And the party in third place, but with a very strong showing, is the far-right Freedom Party, uh, which uh, which will is 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 ex- would like to join the next government as a junior partner with the People's Party under Sebastian Kurz, and it will be quite easy for these two parties to form a coalition because their platforms in many areas is quite similar. And I'll come back in a moment to those platforms and the, and the policies of both parties. But can you tell us something first about Sebastian Kurz? What's his background and how did he rise so far so fast that he, he, he's put himself in this position where he is now poised to be Chancellor at the age of 31? Yes, yeah, so it's quite an amazing political career. He comes from a middle-class background in Vienna. Uh, he went into politics already as a student, as a high school student. He was active as a as a as a, as a law student with in, in the People's Party. And uh, at age 25, he was picked uh, to be to 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 join the government as a junior minister. And from the moment he joined, uh, he turned out to be very eloquent, very smooth, very smart polite, well-connected, and uh, he, a few years, two years later, he became foreign minister, and he became Austria's most popular politician. Uh, and this spring, he actually took over, almost in the, in the internal coup d'etat, he took over the leadership of his party, forced snap elections, and won this election. He, he is an amazing political talent, uh, which who has who is overturning Austrian politics uh, in in a very short time, and now we'll have to see what he what he makes of this. And what made him so popular? Is it his personality, or his policies, or a combination? He he picked the right uh, topics. He quickly after when the refugee crisis in 2015 hit Austria, he was one of the first ones to say this cannot go on. We have to do something about it. And he turned to a tough line on immigration. He, as a foreign minister, he he demonstrated the ability to act. He claims he closed the so-called Balkan routes by route by. Uh, uh, giving uh, giving support to Macedonia to close its border, uh, uh, defying uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, and he is uh, able always to project this 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 combination of of youthful innovation, but also maturity, uh, and this comes across really well. And there are thousands of activists in the party became really enthusiastic to run for him to work for him. Uh, and he, so, so he has really uh, dominated Austrian politics for, for the last two years and certainly in this campaign. And ha- have his po- politics always been very conservative or did he adopt a particularly conservative position in this election in order to ensure that the, the Freedom Party, uh, in, just to, to hoover up some of their votes? When he joined the government at first, he he was in charge of integration. He took a rather liberal line also toward Muslims and 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 and, and, and refugees. Uh, in 2015, he certainly turned sharply to the right, or he turned to the right and became much tougher on on the question of immigration, but also on European issues because he saw areas where the EU was was not uh, wasn't wasn't helping Austria in its uh, efforts to, to, to clamp down on, on illegal, illegal migration. 
And certainly in the campaign, he, he, he emphasized his conservative right-wing views to steal votes from the Freedom Party. Um, so, yes, he is conservative, but I wouldn't overestimate this. I think he still he likes to be in the mainstream of European politics. So, in other words, is he one of those politicians who maybe now, when he is in power, will we see a softer side to him? Did, did he need to make this move in order to, to win the election in the first place? We'll see whether he will show a softer side. He actually has a soft side in his appearance and his way of talking, but he can be pretty tough when it comes when it comes to issues. Uh, he is certainly somebody who will be willing to compromise, and and he's been willing to compromise or even give up some positions uh, on issues like pensions reform and others, wherever he had a feeling that that this would hurt him. So he will not ideology will not stand in, in his way. To, to achieve results. Um, but with the Freedom Party as a coalition partner, uh, he may not see much need to, to turn to the middle. Now, about the Freedom Party, you know, we, we, the, the label far-right is, is almost permanently affixed to them, at least in English-language media. Is it fair to describe it as a far-right party? How, how far-right is it on the spectrum? Well, they, are, they, they were... They come from the far, from the far right when they were, they were founded... Uh, decades ago, really, as a place where former Nazis could find a could, could find a political home, um, and under Jörg Haider, the 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 late leader, they they took very tough uh, positions on immigration, on Muslims, on on, on foreigners. So uh, they they certainly fit into the far right spectrum in Europe too. However. They have been trying. They have tried to, to be also respectable. So once in a while, they have made noises of leaving the EU or leaving the euro or being extremely eurosceptic. But they have moved away from that again. Uh, they are, and, and particularly in this campaign, they have they have tried to show a softer side uh, of themselves, uh, presenting themselves as a as a. As a, as a party that is able to govern and would not just be a rabble-rousing protest party. But the ideological core is certainly not far from Marine Le Pen in France or the AfD in Germany. And yes, they are in, a, in, a, in, a, in the same faction in the European Parliament with the Front National of Marine Le Pen. You mentioned the EU there, and obviously it would be a matter of great, great concern to other governments in the EU if, if Austria had a party and government that wanted to take Austria out of the EU. But that's no longer the case, is it? And this is no longer the case. When it doesn't mean when the Euro, when there's whenever there's a crisis in the EU, they may fall back into this. Uh, why don't we start to leave? And when and when Britain uh, voted for the for Brexit, uh, the one of the top leaders, Norbert Hofer, who was at the time running for the federal presidency, immediately started talking about a possible referendum on exit, about Austria leaving. However, when he realized that this doesn't go well, down well with the Austrian broader, broader public, uh, they moved away from it again. Okay. So they are saying, we want the EU, we just want it to work better and be, uh, be more more along national lines, uh, but the, the, the instincts are certainly not pro-European. Okay, the, the Euroscepticism isn't far beneath the, the surface, if you, if you scratch from what you say. It saying. is, yes. And now, um, most of us remember um, the, the Freedom Party was in government in Austria uh, previously, and back in 2000, when it also went into government with the, the People's Party. And at that time, there was a 
it caused major eruptions really throughout throughout Europe and and the um, uh, the European Union imposed sanctions on Austria at the time. Um, the, it seems inconceivable that that would happen now. What do you think has changed in the meantime that it seems to be now more acceptable internationally um, that a far-right party could form part of the government there? Well, a few things happened. First of all, these so-called sanctions didn't work and they were lifted a few months later. And the Freedom Party turned out to be an relatively not, a, not a, an incompetent and also corrupt part of the Austrian government. But uh, they did not uh, uh, overthrow democracy or endanger democracy at all. So they proved to be not as bad as, as feared. Um, other in other European countries, far-right parties have also risen. They've also supported minority governments or even joint coalitions. So this has become much more mainstream. Um, there's also a new generation of leaders in the Freedom Party. They are not any more moderate than the previous ones, but they, they, they don't have the same uh, bi- biographical ties to uh, uh, to the Nazi period as some older people. So, so some of the older members uh, two decades ago, and and they don't have this figure of Jörg Haider who was so polarizing and also in this respect. So everything together, uh, knowing it won't help, uh, and having gotten used to far right parties being fairly strong. I think all European, most European governments will say, well, we have to work with them anyway, so let us just leave them alone and wait what they're actually going to do. And nevertheless, um, I I suppose there will be some concern um, among Austria's European partners about the result. How how do you think the result would be received in Germany and, and what kind of relationship would Sebastian Kurz be expected to have with Angela Merkel? Well, Sebastian Kurz has a has a rough relationship with Angela Merkel. They were at odds in 2015 and 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 and, and the year afterwards about the right uh, policy toward uh, toward refugees. Kurz has criticised Merkel repeatedly about her welcoming culture and opening the opening of the borders. So they will certainly not be good friends. However. Uh, they know they have to work with each other, and and um, Kurz is actually fairly on very good terms with uh, with the CSU, with the Bavarian part of the of Angela, Angela Merkel's party. So he has uh, allies also in Germany, and uh, I think they will get along because German and Austrian uh, interests uh, often coincide in Europe. And um, just to recap quickly, Eric, on the, I wanted to ask you about the campaign. It was quite a, um, a contentious campaign, wasn't it? And there was even a, a, um, a, a dirty trick scandal, if you like, an allegation of dirty tricks against Sebastian Kurz, which led back to the, the governing, um, his partner in government, the Social Democrats. Can you tell us something about that and what was well, the impact of it? Yes, the, the, the dirty tricks uh, scandal was very closely tied to the Social Democrats. They had an Israeli uh, campaign consultant, Tal Silberstein, uh, who was uh, then arrested for, 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 for non-related reasons in Israel, and then they fired him. But as it turned out, uh, he had set up secretly uh, websites which were kind of slandering Sebastian Kurz and trying to hide the, the source of these of, of these apps. So they were, the more dirty tricks were, were, were done, they were revealed, they uh, really disrupted uh, uh, the Chancellor Kearns and his Social Democratic uh, Party's campaign. And although it didn't help Kurtz much, because uh, there were some, in some way he was 
not really implicated, but the feeling was this is how the, how old parties, how the established parties work. So it, it it took the whole political establishment down, and it's, it probably helped the Freedom Party to to do much better in the election than than, than expected. So it didn't could escape from this fairly uh, un, undamaged, uh, but it uh, added to the to the general mistrust and discontent about politics in, in Austria. Yeah, and I suppose you, Austria then, is, you, you would have that in common with countries across the Western world. And yet, yet we probably still will end up with a party in government that's been in government since really forever, hasn't it? I mean, the establishment is kind of won in the end anyway. Am I right? Well, Kurtz, one of the, his, 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 his magic tricks in the campaign was he who has been his party has been in government forever and he has been minister for a very long time was still able to project this image i'm going to change things i'm i'm someone who is new so there is this feeling this is not going to be the old ways this is a new way a government of new ways uh with you cannot you you cannot totally when I mean, austria didn't have doesn't have an uh, doesn't have an implosion uh, like 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 Greece, other countries where the establishment parties would just disappear. So, if you wanted to govern here, you need at least one of the uh, of the establishment parties. But with Kurz and with the FPÖ, uh, the Freedom Party uh, in in government, um, it could look quite different from the old ways. Okay, and are are liberals in Austria very concerned about this apparent kind of you know lurch to the right? There is a lot of concern about it, um, but there's also a feeling of resignation. We have, Austria has lived with this, this shadow of the far right being on the verge of taking power, actually being in power now since 1986, since Jörg Haider actually took over the Freedom Party and pushed it from 5% up to the same, up to 27, 20, uh, 26, 27% at, at, at more than a decade later. So. Uh, we have seen it all for so long, and we know the the, the dark sides of this party. Uh, but I think there's also a feeling that you can you can live with it, you can survive. And there's also for those who really dislike the far right, there's always the hope. The best way to 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 bring the far right party down to size is by taking them into a government and giving them some responsibility. The voters who supported them because they wanted to be against everything will desert them in droves. Okay, Eric, we'll, we'll be watching with developments with interest. How quickly will um, what, what's the timetable now for negotiations, and how quickly will it be confirmed? Jim? Things are quite slow in Austria. Uh, first, the votes have to be fully counted. The parliament has to assemble. Uh, the, Mr. Kurz will get the mandate to form a government. He will start negotiations. Um, in the past, you would have said it will it will take until Christmas, uh, so several months until the government is is ready. This time, it could be a bit faster. I think the two parties are quite ready to, I think they know what they want and are quite ready to form, but certainly not this month. Okay, so we might continue in Ireland to have the youngest prime minister in Europe just for a little while yet. Um, Yes, for a while you will. (laughs) Okay, Eric, that's been very interesting. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. That's it for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening and goodbye.